You're listening to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We hope this message brings you encouragement and helps to build your faith in Jesus. We're glad you're here to listen to this message from Pastor Paul. We are continuing our study, the Gospel of John. And the author of this gospel is one of Jesus' nearest and dearest friends, John was there for nearly all of Jesus' public ministry, so he was an eyewitness. And we're right about at the halfway point of the gospel. Now, the first half of John's gospel uh, covers about three years of Jesus' life and ministry. The second half will cover only about two weeks of Jesus' life and ministry. And John is such a great storyteller. And if this were a, a movie, it would be like right now the, the scene is slowing down, the camera's focused, the dialogue is, is honed to get us to pay attention particularly to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, which is the central theme of the entire story. And before we go on to our story today, let me remind you of what has happened in chapters 10 and 11, because maybe you were with us. Maybe you weren't, and if you weren't, you better have a good excuse. In chapter 10, things really reached a fevered pitch when those who opposed Jesus went up to him and publicly asked, are you the Christ or not? Are you God? And Jesus openly, publicly, clearly answered, yes, I am God. To which they responded in John 10, verse 33. We are stoning you for blasphemy then. Because you, a mere man, claim to be God. They didn't actually stone him on that occasion, of course. But Jesus says he's God. In chapter 11, he then says he forgives sins. And he alone gives eternal life. Here's how he says it in John 11. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me, this is the next verse, will never die. Do you believe this? So Jesus says, chapter 10, I'm God. Chapter 11, I forgive sin. And if you believe in me, you can have your sin forgiven. You can be raised from the dead. You can go to heaven and be with me forever. To prove his words and his works, he goes to the gravesite of another one of his nearest and dearest friends, a guy named Lazarus, who has now been dead for four days. And Jesus at that gravesite calls out, Lazarus, come forth. And he raises Lazarus from death. And just so you know, and you probably learned this in in science classes in school, for every reaction, there is a reaction. And when it comes to Jesus, Jesus says he's God. Jesus shows that he's God. Well, then there are the reactions to what Jesus says and does. And I want you to think through this about yourself. What is your reaction? What is your response to who Jesus is to you today? And the first response we see is that some people hate Jesus. 
Now we're going to pick up the story in John 11, beginning at verse 45, we read this. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary, so this is Mary, uh, yeah, there's several Marys in the New Testament. This is the Mary that's one of the sisters of Lazarus, saw that story last week. This is a family that's very close with Jesus. He will come to their house often. He will eat with them. He will stay with them. So many of those Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did in the raising of Lazarus believed in him. So Jesus says he's God. He raises Lazarus from death. Many believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees is this very conservative religious group that hold a lot of power. Some of those who were witnesses went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. This is amazing. Jesus raises a dead guy, and instead of turning to belief for all of the eyewitnesses, some of them can't wait to turn Jesus in. It's like they run up to the Pharisees and say, hey, hey, Jesus raised this guy from the dead. Did he have permission? Did he have a permit? Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. This is the governing body, 70 men, um, <laughs> which, by the way, never have any fun and no sense of humor. I think it's one of the qualifications for being extremely religious. They called a meeting in the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. Jesus is feeding people. Jesus is healing people. Jesus is raising people. And what are these religious people doing? Nothing except criticizing the one who is. Here are two categories of people. People who do things and people who criticize people who do things. Jesus is helping people and they're criticizing him. They're not helping others. That's one of their main problems. Next verse. They say, if we let him go on like this, okay, like what? He turns water into wine. He walks on water. He heals people. He, he feeds people. He raised Lazarus from dead. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. So you have God's people, the Jewish people, who are being ruled over by the Roman government. And if the Jewish people cause too much trouble, well, then the Roman government will come in and they will outlaw their religion. So what they're saying is Jesus is getting so popular that the people are saying Jesus is Lord and the government wants us to say Caesar is Lord. And if people are more devoted to Jesus than they are to Caesar, and if Jesus's revolution continues... There will be a response from Rome. So one of them, one of that group, Caiaphas, who's the high priest, he's the senior leader, he spoke up. He said, you know nothing at all. And he continues, do you not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish? Here's his assessment. There's Jesus 
and there's our nation. If Jesus continues, our nation will perish. So let's get Jesus out of the way and spare the whole nation. What Caiaphas doesn't understand when he's saying this, this is ultimately God's plan. Next verse. He did not say this on his own. You know, sometimes even those who hate God can say things that are true. But as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So here they are in the Middle East. Here we are in North Carolina, 2,000 years later. How did all that happen that we got to be believers? Well, it's promised right here. Jesus would die for the people. We know that he would die for the sins of the people. And the good news of Jesus would go to every nation because every nation needs to surrender to his kingdom. Next verse. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. They're going to kill God. God shows up on earth and we plot to kill him. That just reveals how sinful human nature is. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. So Jesus goes into the witness protection program. He knows that his time is coming, but it's not yet. It's a few days later, but not right now. But isn't this amazing in a sad way? that the religious leaders seek to kill God. You see, you can be moral, you can be religious, you can be spiritual and not know God. Our goal is not to make you moral or religious or spiritual. Our goal is to introduce you to Jesus and let him start to change you so that you love Jesus and you want to be like him. Next verse when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover. Now, this is the feast where it started back in Exodus. They would take a lamb that is without spot or blemish. And that lamb would be sacrificed as a substitute for all sinners because sin required death as its penalty. Jesus shows up. It's the season of Passover. He's going to lay down his life to fulfill the ultimate meaning of Passover, to be that glorious, perfect lamb so that our sins can be removed. Just an aside, by the way, John in his gospel will tell us of three different times that the Passover occurred. The Passover is only once a year. So that's why we know that Jesus' ministry lasted three years. This is the third one. This is near the end of the third and final year of Jesus' public ministry. So it was time for the Jewish Passover. Many went up from the country to Jerusalem. That's what they were supposed to do. Right back on that verse. Sorry, Kara. They went up to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. Now, get this. 
They're going up for the cleansing. So why are you here? Well, to get clean in the sight of God. Well, how are you going to do that? We're going to murder God. Those who think they are clean are totally dirty. Those who think they're right are totally wrong. And they're opposing God in the name of being godly. Very confused. Next verse. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? Is Jesus going to show up? Is he going to hide? Well, at this point, they've got a bounty on his head. He's on a wanted poster in the Hebrew post office. But, next verse, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. In this, I want you to see that some people hate Jesus. Why? From our story, I'll give you two primary reasons. Because he's truthful and he's offensive. He shows up and they disagree with him. And what Jesus tells them is, you are not the highest authority in your life. I am. That's true and that's offensive. And then he says, there are some beliefs and behaviors of yours that are wrong and that need to change. And they say, no, we are the highest authority. You're wrong, we're right. This still happens today. Christianity is truthful and it's offensive. In our culture, we will see some people who overtly hate Jesus and they want to reject everything about the revelation of God's word. But some are even a little bit more subtle than that. And they'll say things, maybe you've even heard this. They'll say, I like Jesus. I like Christ. I just don't like Christianity. Why? Why don't you like Christianity? Because they say Christ is the highest authority and I need to change. Well, that's what Jesus said. We're just echoing the teachings of Jesus. Now, to be sure, there are times when people don't like Christians because we say and do things that are offensive that aren't biblical. But sometimes the problem is a person wants to be the highest authority in their lives, and Jesus should be the highest authority in their lives. And they want Jesus to tell them that nothing is wrong about their way of behaving and living and thinking, and Jesus tells them through his word that there is something wrong with them, like he tells us, and we need to change. This is where there is conflict when it comes to Christ. This is where there's conflict when it comes to Christianity. We use the language as Christians of sin and repentance, and that's ultimately what is being revealed here in this account. So how about you? Who's the highest authority in your life? And if what Jesus says, if he says to you that your beliefs and your behaviors are wrong, are you willing to change or are you wanting to fight him? 
And if you do that, you are just like these religious leaders who are arguing with Jesus. And ultimately, they want to put him to death to show that they are the highest authority, that they're right and he's wrong. You see, this is where Christianity requires humility. It requires humility for us to say, I am not the highest authority in my life. There are times that I do things that are wrong and I need to change. Jesus is the highest authority and there's nothing he needs to change. He's perfect, I'm not. He's right, I'm wrong. If we disagree, he wins. So two things I wanna focus on here briefly. These are attributes of God. So in other words, what's God like? Well, the first thing we see in this passage, what God is like, what is his number one attribute is love. How does God, how do we know God loves us? It's because Jesus substitutes himself for us. Again, the high priest Caiaphas prophesies this. He said, it is better for one man to die for the people. Jesus is going to die for the people. And that includes us. This is the concept of substitution. It's the heart of Christianity that you and I have sinned against God and the wage, the penalty, the debt is death. Jesus comes and he substitutes himself on a cross. He dies that we might have life. He is the one who secures for us forgiveness of sin, a relationship with God. If you're new or you don't know Jesus, this is why we love Jesus so much. How many of you have someone in your life that would be willing to die for you? Jesus did die for you. Twelve years ago, the world watched as we learned of 33 miners trapped 2,000 feet below the surface in the Atacama Desert in Chile. They could not rescue themselves. What did they need? They needed a rescuer. They needed a deliverer. They needed someone else to look at their situation and to design a plan to rescue them from death. One of the miners, Jose Gonzalez, recalls hearing an explosion overhead about 2 o'clock in the afternoon on August 5th, 2010. For four hours, they were trapped beneath dirt and dust. He said they, once under, uncovered from the debris, they had to determine if there was an escape route. They quickly realized there was no way out. Jose then said, and I quote, the only possibility was God. It was Christ, so we needed to pray. They started taking inventory of their food supply, and they realized they only had about two to three days worth of food, eating normal portions. The other men said to Jose, we know you are a Christian. We want you to guide us in our prayers. They circled for prayer, 
and Jose led them. The first prayer went something like this, he recalls. Lord, we are not the best of men. Lord, have mercy on us. Look after the young, look after our families. Jose said, we presented our whole situation to God and then he finished his prayer. We cannot do anything here. All we have left is you because we have no one else to call to because we know you are the one who hears our prayers. They started having prayer at noon every day. All of that started to produce changes in these trapped miners. Changes in their attitude, changes in their friendship, changes in their unity. God was with us, he said. They began skipping meals for 24 to 48 hours, even 72 hours on some occasion, just to avoid running out. On the 16th day, the food was running out. On the 17th day, the Lord allowed them to be found. Now, that didn't mean that they were going to be rescued anytime soon. But the drilling in several different locations finally discovered the men, that located the men. And when this probe that had dug down 2,000 feet was pulled back up, attached to it was a note that said, all 33 men are still alive. That probe was shortly followed by a camera for communication and then obviously food and, and water. Finally, after 65 days, those miners, one by one, began to be brought to the surface. The best part of the story, Jose concludes, he said 22 of those men gave their heart to Jesus. Let me say it again. They could not rescue themselves. They needed a rescuer. They needed a deliverer. They needed someone else to look at their situation and try to get to them to rescue them from death. We call these people heroes. This is a police officer who steps into harm's way to protect someone. This is a soldier who confronts the enemy so that you and I can have freedom. If a building is on fire, it's the firefighter who rushes toward that fire. We call these heroes. The Bible uses the language of Savior. The one who will risk his own life so that you could live. His name is Jesus. How do we know that God loves us? Because Jesus gets off of his throne and he runs toward this crisis of a mess that we've created. And he dies that we might live. He puts himself in harm's way so that we can have a relationship with God that never ends. This is how the Bible connects the cross of Jesus, the substitution of Jesus with the love of God. We read back in chapter 3, most famous verse of all, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the same author of this gospel, John, wrote in a letter, this is 
is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, that he would die in our place for our sins. And when you understand that Jesus lived the life that you and I could not live, the perfect life, that he died the death that we should have for our sins and gave us the gift that we could not earn, a relationship with God and eternal life, what you should respond with is this. Jesus, you love me, and I love you, and you rescue me, and I want to be with you. And Jesus, you got me out of the mess that I made for myself. No one else could have gotten me out of this mess. And you brought life into my death. You brought forgiveness into my guilt. It is the love of God that we see wildly on display in Jesus. And then the other thing here, the second attribute of God is God's sovereignty. This is something that Christians debate all the time. In, in America, almost every Bible college, probably right now, if they're having courses, is having a discussion about this. The issue is this. Do human beings make their own choices or is God in control? The answer is yes. In this story, where people making their own decisions are they deciding we will not listen to Jesus we will not love Jesus we will not follow Jesus we're going to attack Jesus we're going to falsely accuse Jesus we're going to arrest Jesus we're going to murder Jesus are they of their own decision making yes is God still in control yes right after the book of John comes the book of Acts and in it Reflecting back on this event at the cross, a guy named Peter gives a sermon in Acts chapter 2, and he says this. This man, he's speaking of Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. I want you to see that again. This is God's plan. This wasn't a, oops, didn't know that was going to happen to him. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Here's what he's saying. The people, you, decided to murder Jesus, and God knew you were going to murder Jesus, and he had a definite plan to use what was going to be evil for something that was good. And what you need to know is that people make decisions but God makes the last decision. Let me give you an analogy of how this works. Let's say uh, that you're on a, a big ship. Let's say a cruise ship. Everyone is on this ship, and people are making a lot of decisions for themselves on that ship, right? But the ultimate control of the destination of that ship belongs to who? The captain. The question is, well, are people making their own decisions on the ship? Absolutely. Are they responsible for those decisions? Yeah. But they're all on the captain's ship, and the captain will ultimately determine where the passengers go because he has the overriding decision of it all. 
human history is like this. Caiaphas, the high priest, is responsible for his decisions. Judas, the betrayer, is responsible for his decisions. Religious leaders are responsible. Worshippers of Jesus are responsible. But ultimately, they're all on the captain's ship, and he will take human history to its intended destination and destiny. Why do I give you this encouragement? Right now on the earth, are there people who are doing horrible things? Absolutely. Have you and I made decisions in our life that are painful and foolish and regrettable? Absolutely. And the question is, well, then what will happen? The captain will get us to port because the captain is sovereign and he's good. That's the sovereignty of God. The captain is sovereign and good and everybody makes their decisions. But as believers, you need not worry because he's still at the helm. We see this in this moment. Because in this moment, it's very dark. The religious leaders are against Jesus. There's a bounty on him. There is a warrant for him. There is an assassination plot against him. But ultimately, God has a definite plan to take their evil and use it for good for the saving of many people. That's what the cross is all about. Because God works out for the good of all who love him and are called according to his purpose, you can always trust the captain even when there's mutiny on the ship. Some people hate Jesus. Some people hate Christianity. Do you? If that's you, then I've got to ask you to examine your heart. Why? You need to ask, why do, why do I hate Christ? Why do I hate Christianity? Why do I reject authority? Why do I believe that God is the one who needs to change rather than assuming that I'm the one that needs to change? But it's not too late for you. There is still hope for all if there's still breath in your lungs. So the first response to Jesus is that some people hate him. The second response is that some people love Jesus. The third response is some people use Jesus. And we'll see those two next week. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, our website, bhprez.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to stay up to date on all our latest content.